thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us to understand the truths in this very challenging chapter. In your name, amen. So if your phone's on, could you silence it? That would be great. So I have a, a joke, but as I have no segue to the message. It's just freestanding. <clears throat> so a new boss was appointed at an office, and he had a reputation for being really fierce. And he's walking through the office for the first time, and he spots a guy just leaning up against the door frame and doing nothing, just staring out at mid-distance. So the boss decides, I'm going to show everybody around here how things are going to be done from now on. So he approaches the guy and asks him sternly, what's your monthly salary? He said, 2200 a bit surprised. And the boss whips out of his wallet, thrust 1800 in his hands and yells, there's your two weeks pay, now get out of here and never show your face again. Well, the guy takes the money and leaves and the boss feeling like he's showing everybody else in the office what's going to happen with idle hands and how it's dealt with. So he said, what did that guy do anyways in this place? And one of the other clerks just shrugged, well, he delivered our pizza. So, a very nice tip. <laughs> and I actually do have a friend whose uncle founded a very well-known company, and he was quite a hard-working genius, and his, his worth, worth, work ethic was what he thought everybody should be like him, and he did... He did this very same thing. He didn't whip out any money out, but he saw somebody just standing there, and he went over and said, you're fired. And they said, but I don't work here. <laughs> Wait, go. <laughs> so, anyways, that's a true start. Anyways, parents and teachers work hard to teach little children simple concepts that they can grasp. So you would never teach physics to a toddler and nor would you have the first day of kindergarten be engineering. Their minds are not able to comprehend such truths because of the, their limited understanding. And it's similar, really, for us as adults regarding difficult spiritual truths taught in God's word. The truth is, we have finite minds, and our minds have been terribly impacted by the fall. So we are limited in our comprehension when it comes to having a full understanding, for instance, of the Trinity, one God, three persons, or how Jesus could be fully God and fully human at the same time, or how human responsibility and the doctrine of election can work together. Just as a child has limitations to grasp difficult concepts, we realize there, there are truths about God that we are never going to fully grasp this side of heaven. What is important is that we accept and believe the truths taught to us in Scripture regardless of our inability to wrap our heads and minds around it. So we do not deny the Trinity because we can't figure out how one God, there's three individuals. Nor can we deny the truth of elect God electing people to salvation uh, based on what makes sense in our human mind. Scripture teaches that all men are without excuse. And we saw that clearly taught to us in chapter 1. People are responsible to acknowledge God, to worship him, to observe nature, to deal with the conscience that he's given them, to be grateful to him, to worship him. And yet we read in Ephesians 2 that everybody born is born dead spiritually in trespasses and sin. So dead people cannot respond to that light unless God first makes them alive spiritually. <clears throat> this is a challenging doctrine. It cannot be denied. It cannot be redefined or 
made to, uh, different just to satisfy our limited mind's ability to grasp it. We don't have to figure it all out, but we do have to surrender our own wills to a perfectly holy and good God who does not make any mistakes. So we are called to trust him and believe his word. And when we get to heaven, we're going to have a new mind and a new body. That's a good thing. And we'll have a greater capacity and it will be easy to understand all of these things. So for now, we teach and believe what scripture says and we trust him even when we struggle with our human uh, ability to grasp or the lack of ability to grasp the secret things that really belong to God. I'm thankful for the book, God's Plan for Israel, which I leaned heavily upon in preparing this study. And um, I just want to say I'm really crazy about the author. <clears throat> so as Paul, he's my husband, <laughs> if you don't know that. As Paul begins these next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, then he's going to continue to defend the truth that God is righteous in all that he does. For the Jewish believers reading this letter, he knew that they would be wondering, what about all the promises everywhere in the Old Testament that we read? What about all the promises God made to our nation? The nation as a whole had rejected that Jesus is their Messiah. And then the Apostle Paul uh, was thought by them to be a traitor by the Jewish people as he brought the message of Jesus to Jew and Gentile alike. So now Paul's going to take three chapters to explain that God is not through with the nation of Israel. In fact, he will keep every single promise he ever made to her. Paul starts this section sharing his deep and passionate love for his kinsmen of Israel. And he will then turn to Israel's past history to clarify and prove that God is righteous in all of his dealings with Israel in the past. So we read in chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So Paul did not want to be misunderstood as he spoke about, his, about the unbelief of Israel. He was brokenhearted over the spiritual condition of the Jewish people. His grief was so compelling that he actually states in verse 3 he was willing to go to hell if that would mean his kinsman's salvation. Obviously, that is not possible, but it is the only way Paul could think of to try to express the deep desire in his heart for the salvation of his people. Paul absolutely meant what he said here, and he calls Christ and the Holy Spirit to be his witness. What an amazing heart of love and passion Paul had for the lost and especially the lost people of Israel. We might be willing to die for someone we love, but be willing to spend eternity in hell for a whole bunch of people we don't even know. But that was his desire. Paul's heart for the nation was such a deep love. And he touches on all the amazing privileges that God had given his chosen people. And still they rejected their Messiah when he came. First of all, they were adopted as sons, not everyone in the nation, but the people as a whole have been given a special relationship to God. We read in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God adopted the the nation of Israel and gave special favor to them. Israel was also given the glory. And here he's speaking of that visible presence of God as seen by the nation of Israel when God led them out of Egypt. And they had the cloud and a pillar of fire and as he led them throughout the wilderness. Ultimately, his glory filled the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, was seen by this very unique people. And the very presence of God led and protected and comforted them. And then they were the ones given the covenants. That's the promises, very specific promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. God promised to do certain things for this nation. They were also given the law. God gave us very specific legal code to his people, Israel. We even have some of the same laws today in our country, but it was God who originally gave these to the nation of Israel. And then the temple service was another privilege of Israel as they served the one true God in the tabernacle and then ultimately at the temple. Then they had the promises of God to the, given by God to the nation that declared they, the promised Messiah would come through their seed. The final and amazing Jewish king would come through David. And all of the other nations of the world would be blessed because of that. And then the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were given only to Israel. Unless you're Jewish, you can't trace your ancestry back to those as your physical descendants. So lastly, the Messiah has come to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish man, yet he was God in flesh, who is over all God blessed forever, he says. So there's no other nation on earth that has been blessed like the nation of Israel. Yet in spite of all this, the nation as a whole rejected their own promised Messiah when he came. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So the nation failed to benefit from all the blessings that they were given. This broke Paul's heart. And every believer really ought to have that level, some level of grief as well, as we have a heart like Paul had, and having a love for the lost, and having a love for the Jewish people as well. After making his love for Israel so clear, now Paul is going to defend the truth that God is completely righteous in how he has dealt with Israel. And he begins by telling us the explanation of what is true Israel. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the promise, the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, even Peter said about Paul's letters that he writes things that sometimes are difficult to understand. And here are one of those hard things to grasp. Theologians call this the doctrine of election. This truth declares that God chooses to save some people and passes over others. The initial reaction of most people is, well, that's simply not fair. 
And Paul is going to go into depth here to explain that God is always righteous. He always was righteous in how he dealt with the nation of Israel. He's going to point out uh, to all that God is sovereignly chose some Jewish people for salvation. And this truth does not destroy his righteousness. Paul first presents the principle of election by making a distinction between the physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Paul's going to illustrate election from Israel's own history, that God is just in everything that he did. So we see in verse 6 that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The Jewish believer had to be wondering about all these promises that God gave the nation in the Old Testament. So had they just failed? Is it over? Has the word of God failed? That word failed has the idea of a ship going off course. So had the promises in God's word to Israel gone off course because the nation rejected their own Messiah? Can puny man actually frustrate God's plan, the all-knowing God? Has God thrown up his hands in the air and said, I just can't believe I couldn't get my people to believe in me? The answer to this question is critical for all of us because what is at stake is whether scripture is trustworthy or not. There are countless promises to Israel about a future kingdom of him giving them a new heart, but they rejected their own Messiah, so has God's word failed. Absolutely not. Paul explains by making the point clear that just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does not mean you're a recipient of God's promises to Israel. God promises, his promises apply to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So from God's perspective, there are two kinds of Jewish people, physical and spiritual. Physical Jews are biological descendants of Abraham's seed. It's a person born into a Jewish family. They're physically Jewish. I mean, and you know, you can be Jewish and be a, a Hindu. You can be Jewish and be an atheist. You can be Jewish and be whatever. However, spiritual Jews are not only biological descendants of Abraham, but are spiritual descendants because they have the same faith as Abraham. Remember chapter 4? That's the whole chapter. All who come to God have to have the same faith as Abraham had. And we saw this when we studied that chapter. But Paul is trying to make it clear that the promises of salvation that God made to Israel will one day be fulfilled Not for those who are simply born physically Jewish, but for those Jews who are spiritual, had come to faith. I mean, a similar example can be made today in our culture where people think they're Christians. And you go to fill out paperwork. I've done a lot of medical paperwork lately, and they ask that kind of question. So people write, well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Muslim, so I'm a Christian. But that certainly doesn't mean that all who claim to be Christians are Christians. The promises God has made to his children and to his church are only fulfilled to those who are truly Christians, those who have repented of their sins, those who have trusted Christ's death on the cross as the only way to be forgiven. So it is that not all Israel will experience the promises made to the nation of Israel, but rather only those who are spiritual Israel. Just like being born into a Christian home, it does not make anybody a Christian. Being born into, physically into a Jewish home does not make you a recipient automatically of God's promises to Israel. The promises God made to Israel were intended for those individual Jews within the nation who would truly believe in him. This group of believers is known as the remnant. And there has always been a remnant. Even when the country was 
bad <laughs> and off in idolatry, there was always a remnant who believed and trusted God. So we see true Israel is not the nation as a whole, but a chosen remnant within the whole. And I remind you that Jesus told the religious leaders, the very you know, important people of that day, he said, Abraham wasn't your father. Oh, that enraged them. Yes, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but they were not true Israel. Paul's first point here then is that there is an elect Israel within national Israel. And now he's going to give an illustration in verses 7 through 13. He quotes from Genesis 21 uh, in verses 7 through 9 as he sets out to prove the truth that God's sovereign choice in election is seen between Isaac and Jacob. He goes back to the start of the nation of Israel, showing that God always dealt with the nation based on his elective choice. Ishmael was also Abraham's son, but God chose Isaac to be the line through which the blessing and the Messiah would come. Ishmael was the result of a human attempt to help God out, while Isaac was the result of divine fulfillment. God chose to bless Isaac over Ishmael. Not every physical descendant of Abraham has been elected by God to receive his blessings of salvation. One might, uh, one might say, well, Ishmael was not a pure Jew. His mother was Hagar. She was an Egyptian. So Paul says, okay, let's do another illustration here. In the Bible, let's talk about Jacob and Rebekah, who had twins on the way. And before they were ever born, God chose Isaac. Not based on any good that he had done, or God chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob and Esau. He chose Jacob. <laughs> Lots of family there. He, God didn't choose Jacob over Esau because his character was more righteous than his. God had elected him before either had been born and done anything. When we study the patriarchs next fall, we're going to see that Jacob was a schemer and who lied. And the only reason God chose Jacob over Esau was because that was God's plan. God purposed this to happen. God's plan never goes off course. And even though the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah, there is still a remnant that will receive every promise God ever made to Israel. So then Paul closes his illustration with two Old Testament quotes. <clears throat> God had told the mother of the twins, as I said, the older was going to serve the younger. In Genesis 25, 23, that it tells us, two nations are in your womb, two manner of people will be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the nation that came from Esau was Edom, the Edomites. And this nation was a nation of idolaters. They were enemies to Israel. And in God's judgment, he made the Edomites serve the Israelites who came from Jacob. In verse 13, Paul quotes from Malachi, the last book of the Bible, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You were given a great little handout in your questionnaire packet uh, dealing with this verse. And you realize this quote in Malachi came more than a thousand years after Jacob and Esau had ever had lived. So God is not referring to personally loving Jacob and personally hating Esau. Rather, God is simply saying at the beginning of Israel's history, he chose Jacob over Esau before they were ever born. And at the close of the Old Testament, God summed up his attitude toward his chosen people as love and his attitude toward this nation of idolaters, Edom, as hate. God was not unfair 
or unjust to Esau or his people, as Karen Davis points out in her notes. But he chose in a special way to single out Jacob with his love. If you choose to deny the doctrine of election, and many in Christendom do, they say it's heresy, then you must also deny really the whole history of Israel here because it is God's choice, God's choice, God's choice. True Israel is the elect remnant of Jews chosen because of divine calling, not on the basis of just being born Jewish. It is through these believing Jews that God will fulfill all of his word to Israel. And now that brings us to God being a righteous God. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So, is God guilty of showing partiality? Paul knew some people would be questioning if God is truly righteous and accuse him of being completely unfair and unjust. But there is no injustice in God. He is righteous all the time in all of his dealings. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Yet for many, this doctrine of election causes them to doubt God's fairness. And so they just twist it to mean something else. Well, he knew ahead of time that that's what they were going to think to do. So then he chose them based on that. That's not what the scripture says. And so many people are disturbed because it seems so unfair that God would choose one and pass over another. But we have to have a balanced perspective on this doctrine seen throughout all the pages of scriptures. Otherwise, God will be portrayed as unfair. And so he appeals to scripture in verses 15 through 18. Paul seeks to answer the charge against God being unjust, and he lets scripture speak for itself. The difficulties that we may have with this doctrine cannot be resolved because we have a mind that can figure it all out. This is where our intellectual limitations cause us to struggle. We are the two-year-olds who don't grasp algebra or chemistry. I'm the 67-year-old who still doesn't grasp those things either. We don't have the capacity in our finite minds to look and comprehend this doctrine completely. Paul goes back to the book of Exodus when Moses was given the law. He's up on Mount Sinai. You remember the story. The people are worshiping a golden calf. I don't know, the jewelry just fell out of their nose and ears and out came a calf. And God judged these people. Remember, Moses came down and God was going to kill everybody there. And Moses prayed for them. God revealed to Moses that he had found favor in his sight. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The truth was, all of Israel who worshiped that calf deserved to die that day. But God showed mercy and compassion on those he spared, though 3,000 perished. Should anyone accuse God of being unjust because he chooses one person over another, then the same accuser would have to say that God is unjust when he spared the nation of Israel that day. They should have all died. If God had given every person justice, the nation would have ended that day. And the fact that Israel has survived is because of God electing people in the nation to show compassion to. What we must see in election 
is the mercy of God. Those who oppose this doctrine because they think it's unfair of God to select some, while others are condemned, fail to realize that, you know what? The entire human race is already condemned. All of us are born sinful. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Every single one born deserves God's judgment. God elects some out of the masses who are already condemned. In reality, instead of being unfair, election is really an act of mercy. God chooses to save those who deserve to die, an act of pure compassion and mercy on his part. So if you are someone who demands fairness, then all people will go to their grave condemned sinners. There is no justice in divine election because it is based only on the mercy and compassion of God. There's no denial of human responsibility here either. Paul is teaching us that apart from God's sovereignty, uh, sovereign mercy, no one would ever be saved. Verse 16 says, It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Remember what we learn in chapter 3. There is none righteous. There is none who seeks after God. God has not told us why he chooses some, but rather he reveals that his choice um, does not make him unjust in doing so. In verse 17, we read about a particular pharaoh God raised up to display his power at the time of Israel's uh, deliverance from being slaves in Egypt. And the nations around all heard about what went on, and they all trembled. So was God unfair because he chose to withhold mercy from Pharaoh? No. God is just when he chooses to show, show mercy to one and withhold mercy to another. God never violated Pharaoh's will when he hardened his heart. Every time Pharaoh refused God's command to let my people go, Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder. And by withholding mercy, God allowed the hardening. This man was defiant, rebellious, and wicked. God simply let him stay in that condition. As someone said, Pharaoh received the ju- if Pharaoh received the justice he deserved rather than the mercy he did not deserve. The doctrine of election shows God's mercy and compassion, and we're never going to understand this mystery, but that doesn't mean we should be troubled by it. Rather, we should fall down on our knees in absolute awe of God's sovereign love and kindness and mercy. So now we look at the theological paradox. Everyone who opposes this doctrine has this line of thinking. If God sovereignly elects some to be saved, how can he hold those not chosen by him accountable for rejecting him? This is an attitude then of placing blame on God for man's sin. Paul makes no attempt to settle the theological tension that there is between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They are both taught in Scripture. Every human born is responsible to respond to the light. They both exist, and just because we don't know in our frail, puny brains how they work together doesn't mean that they're not true. It should never cause us to accuse God of being unjust in any way. I love this in verse 20. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Here God is compared to a potter working on a hunk of clay. And the potter has the right to make the clay into whatever he wants it to be. God has the right to do whatever he desires without disrespectful backtalk. This verse isn't here to help you have a better self-esteem. That's Psalm 139, though it may apply. But this is not the point of this verse. 
When God created Adam, he was in a state of innocence. God, Adam is the one who chose to sin. God knew Adam would sin, but he did not create him sinful. God is not responsible for man's sin. God, like the potter, has taken a lump of clay, which is sinful humanity, and by sovereign election of the clay, it is made into vessels of mercy. No one has a problem if a potter creates a beautiful vase for their table and has one that's going to be created for an ashtray or to collect garbage or just some other common use. If a human potter can do this, certainly God Almighty has the right to fashion sinful humanity into vessels of mercy or hardened sinners. God made Moses and God made Pharaoh. As one person put it, like a potter who has the right to determine the destiny of the clay, so God has the right to determine the destiny of his creatures. And what are God's purposes? Paul makes it clear that God has been patient with vessels of wrath who hate him and rebel against him. He is patient with sinners. Why didn't he wipe Israel all out when they were worshiping the golden calf? that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is calling his chosen ones out of a lump of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. The question is, have you heard his call? No one can hide behind the doctrine of election and refuse to come to Christ because they say, well, I don't think I was chosen by God, so I can't be a Christian. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What does Jesus say? All that come to me, I will in no way cast out. You are responsible to turn from your sins and by faith trust Christ for salvation and for forgiveness of your sins. And the fact that you would even be aware of this is the fact that God is working in your heart. So instead of resisting this doctrine of God's sovereign choice because you can't understand it, instead, as I said earlier, a response ought to be awe and worship that he would choose such a rotten person like us. Don't waste your spiritual and mental strength trying to reconcile the reality of election and human responsibility. They are both taught in scripture and they work together fine in God's mind. And they are both true. To focus on one and to deny the other becomes heresy. Let God be God. He is righteous. He is holy. He is worthy of our trust even when we do not understand his ways. His ways are perfect. They are higher than anything we can really fully grasp. So you know what? Paul taught this, not just here, throughout all of his letters. He believed in divine God's election Could you have had a more passionate, zealous missionary sharing the gospel? To believe God elects people should never hinder one's evangelism or your prayer life. Because God says, go and tell. And we go and tell. He says, pray about everything. You don't sit back and go, well, you know, the elect are going to come, so I don't have to do anything about it. No, that was never the attitude. Both truths are taught in scripture. We're responsible when we come to faith to tell others. We don't know who's going to believe, but the Lord does. And we're called to evangelize and to pray for the lost and believe God is sovereign and that he's going to answer prayers that we don't even know. And we must do the same as Paul. This doctrine keeps us humble and it keeps God glorified. You know why? 
Because your salvation is not because you're smarter than other people or you're more spiritually intuitive than other people. And that's why you understood the gospel. That's why you got saved because there's just, you always loved God or whatever. Now, this is all about what God did for you. We're dead in trespasses of sins. If he didn't wake us up, we'd still be dead. We have nothing to offer God but our sin. And yet he chooses to show us mercy. So he alone gets the glory for every aspect of our salvation and what he has done. There is no place for human pride. There is no place for self-confidence. If you understand the gospel message, it is only because of the work he has done to awaken your dead spirit to the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this challenging chapter. It enlightens us in so many ways. Lord, to understand that church is the church. God had a plan for Israel. God will finish his plan for Israel. God has always worked by choosing to have mercy and compassion. That has always been how it has been. When he chose a nation, when he chose a particular person in the nation, when he chose the son and the grandson, Lord, help us to just let you be God and be at peace with that. Help us to be obedient, to love you, to share the gospel with people, to trust you, to pray, pray for the lost, have a broken heart like Paul had for the lost people that he loved. I pray that we would emulate that and never let the teaching of these truths hinder that. Lord, I thank you that you are so merciful and so compassionate because in reality, we are all running away from you. I thank you for the work you've done in the hearts of the ladies here. And if there's anyone, Lord, who has not trusted you yet to be uh, the Savior of her life, I pray that you will open her eyes today, that she will not harden her own heart, but will call upon you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.